This is AmericasWebRadio.com, the best in chat radio designed just for you. Welcome. This is Detailing Addiction. I'm Dr. Susan Blank, and you're listening to America's Web Radio. Today in studio, I have David Donaldson from the Atlanta Healing Center, and we're going to talk about a very important document that was released a couple of weeks ago by the Surgeon General of the United States. This is the first ever report on addiction in America. Dr. Murthy has been very dedicated through his brief stay as Surgeon General to look at the causes of addiction and to look at what are the most effective and most evidence-based treatment programs that can help patients who are suffering from this disease. So I thought we would take a few minutes today and talk about this very important article. And actually, it's bigger than an article. It's about 428 pages very good overview of the disease of addiction, the state of the problem, as well as uh, the possibilities for treatment. So I thought today, David, we might want to spend a few minutes and just talk about some of the key findings from this very important report. You know, it's really surprising to me that this is the first uh, report from a Surgeon General about addiction. We, of course, had the the famous one with um, your favorite, C. Everett Koop, addressing smoking mm-hmm. um, and, and so I was curious as to when a surgeon general general brings up a topic how that impacts society and and what kind of um, influence that actually has and and in particular looking at smoking because when you try to research this that's that's what always comes up is that how everett Coop really raised the social consciousness about um, the impact of, of cigarette smoking on the population, on the medical expenses and all of that, and, and really made us start addressing it as an issue as opposed to just something that was kind of thought about or whispered about. And now hopefully the same thing is going to happen with the, the disease of addiction being having, having the emphasis increased. Yes, that certainly that series of a surgeon's general report, this is where I start to forget where I'm supposed to put the S with the apostrophe, surgeon's general reports over the years starting in 1964 when um, more than 45% of the adults in the United States were smoking cigarettes. And that was the first time that... There was this very extensive and exhaustive review of the world's literature about the effects and the impact of smoking. And until that time, we really had very little idea that smoking was related to chronic obstructive lung disease, COPD. Um, We didn't understand the links until several reports later with cancer and then several reports later with the idea that tobacco use is actually an addiction and that it needs to be treated in a very medical and formal way in order to help patients stop because it's one of our most serious addictions. But the interesting thing is that now the use over this 50 years, the use of tobacco has dropped down to less than 22, 23% of the population. That's a huge, huge improvement in terms of public awareness. We now are 
able to go to restaurants, go to university campuses, go to public buildings, and not be subjected to cigarette smoke. The whole view of this and the opinions of the population and the perception of harm has completely changed based on this series of reports since 1964. So the fact that Dr. Murthy has decided to take on addiction as his cause and to develop this, again, exhaustive work led by a number of leaders in the field of addiction around the country, around the world, looking at world literature, looking at what has happened in our country and other countries and what needs to be done to help with this very significant major medical mental health problem that we have. I'm very hopeful that this will bring to the public's eye the importance of viewing this not as he says, we can't view this as a moral failing, we have to view this as a chronic brain disease that needs a medical solution. Well, and and that's what we've been teaching all along in in the field of addiction. We've we've been talking. This is not a moral weakness. This is not a personal weakness, and and that this is a disease. And and now with research, being able to really say this is a, a disease of the brain. But having the surgeon surgeons general um, <laughs> actually release it as as a report where he's linking it medically and and really pushing the idea that we have to stop the separation between medical illness and psychiatric or, or substance abuse illness that we're treating one one organism um, I think is, is huge. What I really like in looking at the report is is that he, with everything he talks about, he, he says well-supported scientific evidence exists. That phrase, with every single key finding in there, he, he uses that phrase and he, and he goes on to say that there's ample evidence both with with animal research and human research to support the various findings that are in there and so finally in one place there is there is a, a looking at at the many different research studies that have been done and bringing mm-hmm. it to say these findings are true um, and and we can begin accepting it and and walk away from the idea that this is just a moral failing or this is some some family problem and realize it's it's much deeper than that It's very important, as you say, David, that this takes a a very different look. In addition to pointing out the problem and pointing out the literature that supports the idea this is a brain disease, there is also extensive work on prevention, information about early intervention and early prevention of this disease. Because it is a disease, and we know it's genetically inherited, we also know, though, that there are a number of things that we can do to prevent or to minimize the impact this disease would have on an individual's life. And I really like that he has taken a significant... um, look at what are the possibilities in terms of prevention, in terms of providing us a map to not have to wait. Unfortunately, so much of medical care, so much of my training in medical school was focused on recognizing a disease and now treating a disease. That 
has got to <laughs> step back a few steps because by the time someone has full-fledged diabetes, there is now organ damage. There is now a problem that is going to be more difficult to manage and will continue to progress. If we can identify that person earlier that is at risk for diabetes and help them manage their blood sugar level, their stress level, manage their carbohydrate and sugar intake, help them with lifestyle changes, we might not be able to completely eliminate the risk of diabetes in their life, but we can certainly delay the onset for many years, and potentially that person will never actually exhibit the full-fledged disease itself. That's where we need to go, and that's what I, another thing I really like about this particular report looking at prevention as well. Yeah, I absolutely agree that that he makes a point of saying um, prevention isn't necessarily going to stop young people from trying the, trying these substances and if they if they've got the potential for the disease of addiction that they might not progress on into it, uh, but he's letting he's he's talking about the evidence is really showing that they don't have to get as bad that it can be it can be um, helped. Mhm. By addressing it much much quicker, I thought it was pretty important. Though he really specifically says alcohol and marijuana in his report, he doesn't name other drugs when he's talking about about prevention prevention with the adolescents. Um, he does talk say that all drugs impact the developing brain, and we have to be mindful of that. But then he goes on to name alcohol and marijuana as having significant impact on a developing adolescent brain. Right. Um, the impact of tobacco was certainly elicited in the previous or the most recent Surgeon General report on tobacco. talks about the effect of tobacco on the developing brain. So that has been addressed, and I don't want us to forget that that, too, has a, an impact on the motivation, the learning center of the brain, the ability to self-soothe and all of those things. But you're right. He has identified our other gateway drugs, which are alcohol and marijuana. These are the two most likely for young children and young uh, adolescents, young adults to have access to and to use on a very regular basis. Well, and, and marijuana in particular is one that, that right now is there's so much push to make it legal and there's so much minimizing that it has an impact and and even with all of that what the surgeon journal is coming out and saying is there is ample valid evidence that shows that it has a drastic impact yes it does and that we should be very cautious and very concerned about where we are going in terms of legislation around marijuana and in fact there's a whole section about that uh, in his um, in the Surgeon General report about the impact on um, the legalization of um, of marijuana or the so-called uh, legalization because we know that in 2015 22.2 million Americans ages 12 or older. This is not looking at younger people, which I think if we went down to eight, we would probably get a few more million people <laughs> involved in this number. But 22.2 million uh, 
Americans ages 12 or older have used marijuana in the past year and that the perception of the harm has gone down. We've talked about this in previous shows about whenever young adolescents perceive something to be less dangerous, they are going to increase their use of the drug. And when they perceive it as more dangerous, they're going to decrease their use of the drug. So back to our example of tobacco, over the years, we've seen the perception that tobacco and tobacco products are dangerous to a person's health and well-being. As more and more people are educated about that, we see fewer and fewer young people starting to smoke. That doesn't mean we've finished and fixed that problem. We haven't. But with marijuana, we're seeing exactly the opposite. As it's talked about as being a medicine, as it's legalized in several states as a recreational Uh, chemical. Now the perception is, well, it's okay. It's a medicine. It's something that my parents can use. And so the prohibition against using it or the perception that it's going to be harmful is so low that they are really embracing it in far greater numbers than ever before. And this is very scary to me. You know, and, and just highlighted in, in in the news that's coming out from places that it is currently legal. There was, you know, on TV recently a, a doctor talking about how many babies are being born um, testing positive for marijuana. And when the mothers are confronted about it, they're surprised to know that a doctor would be concerned because it's just marijuana. It's not that big a deal. Just marijuana. We're going to take a break now. When we come back, we'll talk a little bit more about some of the key findings from the Surgeon General Report on Addiction in America. Thanks for listening. The disease of addiction is a life-altering challenge, not just for the person suffering its effects, but also for the family and friends who support and love the one caught in its grasp. What should be the course of treatment? Who is the best person to render treatment? And what is the best place to go for the care that is needed? We know that you want answers to these and many more questions. Call 770-696-9862 and speak to a representative of the Atlanta Healing Center. They can tailor a program specifically designed to address the needs of the person suffering with an addiction or give you guidance as to where that help may be found. Information is the key and the trained staff at EHC is here to assist. If you wish, you can also get more information on the website located at www.AtlantaHealingCenter.com. This is Skip Coriel, host of the Home Defense Show on America's Web Radio. Join me every week as we explore all aspects of home and family defense as we strive to defend the ones we love in an ever-changing and volatile world. Perhaps you are struggling to cope with the disease of addiction. If not, you probably know a family member or friend that needs help in battling the cravings and the personal and professional damage done by the effects of drugs or alcohol. Get a pen and paper and be ready to write down the following. 
These are the issues that the trained staff at the Atlanta Healing Center address and treat every day. Their doctors and counselors with over 40 years of practice in the field of addiction can treat the suffering individual in a thoughtful, compassionate, and experienced manner and guide him or her along the path to recovery. So call 770-696-9862 and speak to a knowledgeable staff member about how you or your loved one can be helped to enjoy a better and healthier life. More information is also available on the website at www.AtlantaHealingCenter.com. This is America's AmericasWebRadio.com, the best in chat radio designed just for you. Welcome back. This is Detailing Addiction. I'm Dr. Susan Blank, and with me today I have David Donaldson from the Atlanta Healing Center. We're talking about the recently released Surgeon General Report, the first one ever on addiction in America. Dr. Vivek Murthy is uh, the Surgeon General. He's been a Surgeon General since 2014, was appointed by President Obama. And he said uh, in his preface to this report, before I assumed my position as U.S. Surgeon General, I stopped by the hospital where I had worked since my residency training to say goodbye to my colleagues. I wanted to thank them, especially the nurses, whose kindness and guidance had helped me on countless occasions. The nurses had one parting request for me. If you can do only one thing as Surgeon General, they said, please do something about the addiction crisis in America. He said, I have not forgotten their words, and as I have traveled across our extraordinary nation, meeting people struggling with substance use disorders and their families, I have come to appreciate even more deeply something I recognize through my own experience in patient care. The substance use disorders represent the most pressing public health crisis of our time. He recognizes there is no single solution and that we have to move forward to finding more proven treatment modalities. He also calls for a cultural shift in how we think about addiction, that for far too long in our country we have viewed addiction as a moral failing. This unfortunate stigma has created an added burden of shame that has made people with substance use disorders less likely to come forward and seek treatment. As he says in his um, report, it is a not a moral failing in terms of the disease, but how we respond to this crisis is a moral test for America. And I really like the way he has um, personally written about this and some of his motivations uh, to move forward and to try and find some solution to this single most serious health care crisis in America. I, I'm very impressed by his work, and certainly the report is um, a compelling read for those of us in the uh, in the treatment providing profession. But it's also, I think, written well enough and and simply enough, not to say that it's simple concepts, but simply enough that I think most people could pick it up and read it and make some really good. Um, sense of it and have some good conclusions from it. I I think really in, in this section of, of what he talks about with, with having to really look at this as not a moral disease and we've got to do things to begin removing the stigma, that's something even in the addiction 
directly, directly treating addiction mm-hmm. that we deal with on a daily basis, mm-hmm. that we will have patients that we've been working with for for months that are dealing with that in terms of who do I tell about this? Do I disclose it? Um, in particular, this this past week with Thanksgiving and coming up to Christmas, several of the patients we work with mm-hmm. are dealing with I don't want to be a negative influence on the family. I don't want everyone else to not have a good time just because I can't drink or because I've got this problem. And and they're they're really struggling with can I open up and who do I tell? Should I tell? Um, how are people going to look at me? Am I going to ruin everybody's party if I open up? So I mean that's huge that that's front and center. Mm-hmm. Because I think that is one of the big stumbling blocks in terms of why people don't want to get um, treatment and why they don't reach out to get um, treatment. In fact, there's a section that looks at a number of reasons why people are reluctant to get treatment. And the first and most important reason is they're really not sure um, what to do and where to go. And for, well, I guess the most compelling reason that we know of is the the fact that they're not ready. <laughs> so 40% of people say they're not ready for treatment because they're not ready to stop using. But um, that's part of the disease process, too, whether they, where they tend to underestimate the impact of the disease. And as we've talked many times before, they see the drug or the behavior as their solution, not as their problem. I was talking with a patient earlier today about tobacco. And the interesting phenomenon of people who smoke probably a pack a day or more, that when they go to sleep at night, they'll wake up several times during the night and the way they put themselves back to sleep is to go have a cigarette. Now, they won't make the correlation between the fact that the reason they're waking up is because they're in nicotine withdrawal, and so that's waking them up, and they're seeking the cigarette so that they can go back to sleep. Instead, they tend to see it as, oh, well, when I wake up in the middle of the night, I smoke a cigarette, and it helps me go back to sleep. So they don't see the nicotine is the problem that's causing them to wake up. They see it as the solution to the problem that they wake up when they are sleeping. They're very much in, (laughs) when we talk about stages of change, that they're very much in a pre-contemplative stage with with. In your in that situation with nicotine, that so many people are are exhibiting signs of substance use disorder or substance abuse, and they're not at a point where they see it as a problem. Mm-hmm. They see that that having a drink in the afternoon helps me to relax, and I don't understand why everybody's always on my back. Um, they're not seeing the damage it's creating, and 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 you know, for the alcoholic, they're going into a brownout or a blackout, and so they really are truly really not seeing see it. it. Um, but for them, it's still having benefits. And, and part of the whole emphasis on early prevention is to begin highlighting these are the problems that, that we're seeing or these are the problems that are coming um, and, and let people know early that there's, it, there's efforts off the path. So that's the first one. People just aren't ready to quit. What are the other reasons he lists for why people aren't getting into treatment? Well, 30% don't have health care coverage or can't 
afford the treatment itself. Now, it's interesting that less than 10% of people with the disease of addiction not people who have misused substances, not people who have gotten into some trouble because of substances, but people who actually meet the criteria. Only 10% of them actually get treatment. And one of the big reasons is they can't afford it and or they don't have coverage for it. And even with affordable health care, one of the things that we've seen and the report that was released a few weeks ago about how insurance companies are actually violating the law by not covering <laughs> the medications or the treatment for mental health and addiction problems and the same way that they cover other medical illnesses. But we see that they're violating the parity law that says these should all be treated the same, co-pays should be the same, patients' access to treatment should be the same. We know that that's just not happening, and we, we see that reflected in our patients and the struggle that they have trying to get some payment or some reimbursement from their insurance company for their treatment or trying to get their insurance company to cover their medications and to cover them in a timely manner. So that's a big problem. But to your point, speaking about one of the one of the struggles that people have is they're afraid that if they get treatment, it's going to have a negative effect on their job, that their employer is going to find out. So we do have some people that don't want to use insurance even if they have some coverage because they're afraid that that's going to then be found out by their employer and that they will potentially lose their job or lose their opportunity for promotion or have some other untoward impact on their employment. Well, and even with the idea that... that it is a disease and and it's a protected thing that if you do lose your job there that you have a battle there's not really that support out there so when when you really do research into how many people have been able to successfully defend their job because they were having addiction treatment there those numbers really don't exist because in reality people do lose their job mm-hmm. um th- that might not be direct you know you showed up um, it would be if they showed up intoxicated, but it might be that, you know, your job performance is just slacking and we need to find someone else or something. But Are we reorganizing or something? They rarely say it's because you have the disease of addiction because that would be against the law. But the so the fear is real. Mm-hmm. Um, it is. And, and people, you know, will, will continue to, to just... Uh, avoid the problem rather than address it with that fear being there. The other part is that they don't really know where to go. Um, And part of his report is how we've so separated medical issues from mental health and substance abuse issues that people that are dealing with these issues won't know where to go to get treatment. And and the study shows that they really show up at medical places, emergency rooms, and um, um, duck in the boxes seeking addiction treatment and they they need to be um, given those services where they're just having doors closed or they're being judged as having um, they're just drug seeking and they're shushed away and and the so they're not getting their needs met and the studies have found that if they get addiction treatment addicts uses of the other services decline significantly significantly and often 
in these situations where someone shows up in an emergency room because of an injury or an overdose or a, a horrific car accident or some other problem, there's an opportunity for medical professionals at that point to use that as we call the teaching moment, the opportunity to clearly show the relationship between the problem you're having right now and your use of substances and if more doctors and nurses and emergency personnel were trained in how to recognize and how to address and treat and refer patients who have this disease, then people at that time are very motivated and want help if our medical community was trained and able to do this and knew where to go themselves and knew where to refer the patients, we would see a great decrease in morbidity and mortality. We're going to take a break now. When we come back, we'll talk more about the Surgeon General's report on addiction in America. Perhaps you are struggling to cope with the disease of addiction. If not, you probably know a family member or friend that needs help in battling the cravings and the personal and professional damage done by the effects of drugs or alcohol. Get a pen and paper and be ready to write down the following. These are the issues that the trained staff at the Atlanta Healing Center address and treat every day. Their doctors and counselors with over 40 years of practice in the field of addiction can treat the suffering individual in a thoughtful, compassionate, and experienced manner and guide him or her along the path to recovery. So call 770-696-9862 and speak to a knowledgeable staff member about how you or your loved one can be helped to enjoy a better and healthier life. More information is also available on the website at www.AtlantaHealingCenter.com. This is Skip Coriel, host of the Home Defense Show on America's Web Radio. Join me every week for a full hour of all the best and latest information on how you can get the skills and equipment you need to protect the ones that you love. This is Lawyer Liz. Join me each week as we discuss drones, the Internet of Things, and all the technology in between. It's Buzz Off with Lawyer Liz, Wednesdays at 2. The disease of addiction is a life-altering challenge not just for the person suffering its effects, but also for the family and friends who support and love the one caught in its grasp. What should be the course of treatment? Who is the best person to render treatment? And what is the best place to go for the care that is needed? We know that you want answers to these and many more questions. Call 770-696-9862 and speak to a representative of the Atlanta Healing Center. They can tailor a program specifically designed to address the needs of the person suffering with an addiction or give you guidance as to where that help may be found. Information is the key, and the trained staff at AHC is here to assist. If you wish, you can also get more information on the website located at www.AtlantaHealingCenter.com. This is America's AmericasWebRadio.com, the best in chat radio designed just for you. Welcome back. I'm Dr. Susan Blank. This is Detailing Addiction on America's Web Radio. Today in studio I have with me David Donaldson, and we are talking about the land landmark uh, report, the Surgeon General's Report on Addiction in America. Dr. Vivek Murthy has... Um, 
put together a group of experts from around the world and has brought them together to compile this very important work looking at what is the problem and what are some of the potential solutions. So there are a number of key findings that have been uh, reported in this Report. So what are some of those, David? How would you like to share those with us? Well, he has the report broken down into areas of, of different key findings. Um, he has a key finding related to healthcare systems and substance use disorders um, where there's well-supported scientific evidence showing that traditional separation of substance use disorder treatment and mental health services from Regular health care creates obstacles for patients, which is something that we had just talked about. He also has one that really focuses on the early in- intervention and treatment and the management of substance use disorders, beginning to address the problems before um, before people end up um, as the the homeless stereotype that everybody always talks about. Um, what's what I found very beneficial was, as I was reading the report, he really went first to um, that there is lots of evidence, well-supported scientific evidence, both with humans and with animals, that substance use, misuse, and addiction has a neurobiological, um, um, I'm blank on the word, uh, origin, origin Mm -hmm. that, that... Repeated use of it creates changes in the brain, but also genetics create um, um, the the impact in the brain. And that this that what we've been talking about for a long time that this is um, a disease of the brain and a disease of the motivations and drives is is now being put front and center mm-hmm. and and saying this is just like any other part of the body. If there's a disease here, it has to be addressed, and we can't separate it out from all of the other aspects of the body. Um, he also looks at the importance of early intervention. He looks at um, the the reality that there are many different paths to to recovery. That traditional abstinence-based twelve step is is very effective and and evidence-based that that does work, um, but. I'll, there are people who need medicated assist medication assistance. There are people who need a combination of the two. So he really does a great overview of of all of these areas. And any chance people get to actually pull up the report and look at it, it they would find it really, really interesting. I think it's also very important the way in which he has intertwined not only the evidence around the disease and treatment, but also the impact on policies, on education of our health care providers, on our legal system, our, uh, our court system, that this is a huge problem that impacts all of these major institutions in our world and that each of these have to be a part of the solution. We have to have law enforcement and the judicial system. We have to have the medical uh, community willing to open up and learn more about addiction. We have to have the treatment community be more willing to open up and embrace additional ways of providing treatment. We have to have the, the general public look at their own attitudes towards addiction and their own attitudes towards what causes it 
to help decrease the stigma so people are more willing and feel more supported when they go in and engage in treatment. We have to have the school systems involved on early education and intervention. We pediatricians, families, clergy, everybody in our community, everywhere you look, there is a role for someone to play in terms of trying to get our arms around this huge, huge, huge public health crisis and a way to help really find the solutions and help our people live healthier and happier lives. So it, it falls to all of us. It's not just to those of us who've chosen to have our careers based around the treatment of addiction. It's everybody. You can look at yourself in the mirror and you too have a role to play in this. And he points that out very beautifully in many different ways throughout this report. Yeah, he, that is very, very well stated. And the, the way he really links it into each of the um, the areas, and in particular how we're dealing with it from, we continue to address it from a moral place when, when in reality it's so clearly a, a physical disease and a, a disease of the brain that needs to be treated. Um, so he really looks at that that we can't just be punishing we've got to provide treatment and that 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 our laws need to be looked at so that they're they're not just filling up our prisons with people that need help and not not just um to be locked up when we look at the fact that more people die of prescription medication overdoses or heroin overdoses in this country than die in car accidents. And we think of all the people that die of cancer and all the cancer walks and all of the research money, dollars, efforts that go towards treating cancer. We wouldn't allow only 10% of our people diagnosed with cancer to have treatment. That would, that would be appalling to us as a medical community, that only 10% of people with a potentially lethal but also potentially treatable disease would die and would not get treatment. Only 10%? That's not acceptable. And yet part of it does go back to everyone's opinion and prejudice against this disease and the misunderstanding that this really is a neurological disease that has a very well-identified part of the brain that is involved and has a very important um, cycle in terms of predictable and then this happens and then this happens and predictable ways in which interventions can happen at many points along the way. So the, the way he lists it, the, his, his three is um, enabled substance-associated cues to triggers um, substance-seeking, um, increasing, uh, incent- increasing incentive to, to continue to use, happening all of this within the brain, reduced sensitivity of brain system involved in experience of pleasure and reward, and a heightened activation of the brain's stress response, um, and reduced functioning of the brain's executive control system, which involves their ability to make decisions and to regulate one's own actions and impulses and emotions. That the third one, you know, people, people always go to why do they keep deciding to do this they've done all this and they keep making these stupid decisions 
and and we have often talked about the executive function is turned off with addiction. And so the way he's got that phrase that there is just re- reduced functioning in the brain executive control system I mean, that just really says my thinking part is turned off. And my ability to say no, my ability to remember what excuse me, why I should say no. That that's not there. It's off. It's literally offline. And we can see this in our brain imaging studies. We can see that anybody under the influence of enough of a substance, whether they have addiction or not, that prefrontal cortex, that area of their brain right behind their forehead, right above their eyes, goes offline. It's no longer working. It's no longer making good decisions. It's no longer weighing and balancing any kind of consequences. It has given up control and it's no longer driving the bus. And it, you can see that in anybody who goes and has too much to drink, gets intoxicated with alcohol, let's say. Uh, they decide that I'm okay to drive home. I'm okay to do this. Their good judgment is out the window. So you don't just have to have the disease of addiction, but unfortunately when you have continually exposed your brain to the substance, then that part of your brain is offline all of the time, whether you're intoxicated or not. And your continued use of the substance and your inability to stop is actually a brain problem related to this disease. It's it's very well researched. It's very well evidenced. You can see pictures of it. And yet it's not something that most people understand. And something that has to be brought to the level of a Surgeon General's report for hopefully the the national consciousness to be dealing with it. As you were talking, the thing that I kept thinking about was that morality really requires a choice. A person has to be able to choose right and wrong, good from evil, and all of those things that require the executive functioning of the brain. And and his report really highlights how addiction is in the the pleasure-pain center of the brain and in the stress-response center of the brain and the basic survival center. So not a place where we're choosing right or wrong. We're, it's in a place where we're, we're actively trying to live or or run away from you know a terrible tiger that's trying to chase you and eat you to, to save your life but not making choices about is this a healthy appropriate choice or not yes that doesn't enter into the equation at all and the idea that i think he also highlights in that um in that second bullet point which is that the ability of a person to experience pleasure becomes greatly decreased. So many of our family members and so many uh, members of the general public, I think, truly believe that when people are active in the disease of addiction, they're just going out getting high all the time, that they're just seeking pleasure and that it's all about the pleasure reward part of the brain. That's true in terms of the beginning of the use, the seduction into addiction, if you will, and the beginning to use on a regular basis. But by the time the disease is fully 
activated, they're no longer feeling pleasure. In fact, they can't feel pleasure in normal things that they used to feel pleasure in. They no longer want to play the violin. They no longer are interested in baseball. They no longer want to spend time with their family or friends. Those things don't make them feel good. They've had a decrease in their ability to feel pleasure and an increase in their stress response. So their fight or flight is kicked in all the time. So someone asks them, where have you been? As though it was a form of greeting or a question about what have you been doing today? Our patients hear that as an accusation. They hear that as um, someone saying they've done something wrong, and they respond in this very aggressive, hyper, irritable state. We see all of these things, and it's clearly outlined in Chapter 2 of the Surgeon General's report. We're going to take a break. When we come back, we'll talk about a few more key findings. Perhaps you are struggling to cope with the disease of addiction. If not... You probably know a family member or friend that needs help in battling the cravings and the personal and professional damage done by the effects of drugs or alcohol. Get a pen and paper and be ready to write down the following. These are the issues that the trained staff at the Atlanta Healing Center address and treat every day. Their doctors and counselors with over 40 years of practice in the field of addiction can treat the suffering individual in a thoughtful, compassionate, and experienced manner and guide him or her along the path to recovery. So call 770-696-9862 and speak to a knowledgeable staff member about how you or your loved one can be helped to enjoy a better and healthier life. More information is also available on the website at www.AtlantaHealingCenter.com. Did you miss a show that you really wanted to hear? All of our programs are available for download on AmericasWebRadio.com and on iTunes. You can listen to your favorite programs on AmericasWebRadio.com anytime you like. This is Dr. George. Join me Wednesday mornings for Medicine on Call and participate in a lively conversation. Learn what's happening behind the headlines in medicine. Understand Obamacare and learn how to protect yourself and navigate the system. The disease of addiction is a life-altering challenge, not just for the person suffering its effects, but also for the family and friends who support and love the one caught in its grasp. What should be the course of treatment? Who is the best person to render treatment? And what is the best place to go for the care that is needed? We know that you want answers to these and many more questions. Call 770-696-9862 and speak to a representative of the Atlanta Healing Center. They can tailor a program specifically designed to address the needs of the person suffering with an addiction or give you guidance as to where that help may be found. Information is the key and the trained staff at AHC is here to assist. If you wish, you can also get more information on the website located at www.AtlantaHealingCenter.com. This is America's AmericasWebRadio.com, the best in chat radio designed just for you. Welcome back. I'm Dr. Susan Blank. This is Detailing Addiction. I have with me today David Donaldson from the Atlanta Healing Center, and we're talking about the Surgeon General's report. Right before the break, we were talking about Chapter 2, which is highlighting the neurobiological 
underpinnings of this disease of addiction and highlighting some of the regions of the brain that are involved in this. We have the basal ganglia, which is usually thought of in terms of pleasure and reward. We have the um, extended amygdala, which is memory and motivation. And we have the prefrontal cortex, which is our stop, our go, no-go part of our brain that helps us make good decisions. And all of these areas are affected by this disease. And a big symptom that our patients really suffer from as they're active in their disease is boredom. Well, and what I think is so interesting about that, I wanted us to stick here because that's the word that that patients will use uh, when they're describing, I don't feel any pleasure, nothing makes me happy. Um, I can't get excited about anything. They will use the word bored, and, and the word bored, I think, is a trigger word for parents and for family members to anger. Right. Because <laughs> what do you have to be bored about? Get up, go help clean the, all these things I'm doing for you, and you're sitting there being bored becomes the the fight that's happening in the home, and that becomes the relapse factor for the patients because – because as soon as you attack them for being bored, then right. their aggression's going to come up. And this was um, part of what we ended up dealing with with quite a few patients earlier in, in our programming in the sense that it, it manifests in so many ways um, with arguments with family, with with cravings, with just Relax. loss of interest in anything and depressive symptoms. So helping them understand that that is part of the illness it's not just boredom like like when a five-year-old says to their mommy i'm bored and the mommy teaches them about how to learn how to entertain themselves this is an adult who's not able to experience the feeling of pleasure um which is a medical issue that doctors can help with and it's very interesting because they are trying Excuse me, they're often trying to find things. I, I try and read a book. I try and play a video game. I try and watch a movie. And I'm bored is what they are saying. But what they're really telling us is none of those things make me feel good. None of those things hold my interest anymore. Even stuff that I used to really love to do and get a lot of pleasure from, I can't. And I try it, and it doesn't work, and I don't know what to do. So their word is bored. But it doesn't mean I don't have anything to do. It means I don't have any pleasure from anything I try. And it's easy to see from the outside how that can be viewed as a moral thing because what are you doing just sitting there being pleasure-seeking as if that's a bad thing when what they're telling you is, I'm not feeling any feelings. I'm just flat. And using drugs and being high is a lot better than being flat. So I'm I'm so glad that he's made that a huge portion of this mm-hmm. report and really highlighting that that is not a moral issue. That is a symptom of a brain disease that, that there's help for. Another thing that is highlighted in this chapter is the fact that these symptoms of decrease the binge cycle, um, the decreased pleasure and increased burglar alarm system, and decreased executive functioning or making right choices, that those problems persist long after the substance use is stopped. In fact, we don't know how long that will actually last. Those studies are beginning to be done to look at how long does this impact last. Is this permanent? Is this something that can be 
given a certain period of time and then it will get better? And are there some ways that we can learn as physicians and as healthcare providers and addiction treatment professionals, can we learn some other ways to help this heal faster? Because this leaves that person very vulnerable for relapse. And these things don't get better just with detox and 30 days of residential treatment. It's not going to be enough. This is a longer-term problem. Using the drugs and then stopping the drugs is only the very first part of treatment and management of this disease. And that's an important concept that's from this first or from the second chapter. So um, when we think about what has happened in terms of getting well, we know that the earlier people get into treatment, the better off they are, and that, unfortunately, as we said earlier, only 1 in 10 people actually get into treatment. But we know that there are some evidence-based programs that can be very helpful for people. And this is an important part of this report as well. The idea that people don't have to want to go to treatment and can still get better is a real important concept that is highlighted in this report. The idea that we don't have to wait for people to hit a horrible bottom before uh, someone can be engaged in treatment and can get better, I think, is an important um, thing as well. We know that the 12-step programs and uh, a spiritual approach can be helpful. We know this in terms of alcohol in particular. Other substances, it's a little less clear, and sometimes people find that they really need medication-assisted recovery. Well, and I think that's what's highlighted so much is that the person has to have some stabilization to begin having insights and being able to regain executive function and to begin making some choices. And if you're just, depending on the drug of choice, if you're just pushing abstinence, Mm -hmm. that person is not going to be able to get to a place of stability in most cases. What, What we know is that the opiate addict who just has abstinence pushed at them is is not likely to have long-term success. Um, and, and so we have to do things to help that person um, get stabilized and to begin thinking and making decisions that are going to foster long-term recovery. Um, so he really puts out effective principles for treatment for adults as well as for adolescents, recognizing that the goals are, are different. Mm-hmm. With adults, it's really about identifying um, the the damage that has been done and and recognizing that there is still hope and um, using medication to help stabilize the brain and and helping the person get engaged in their community so they can continue their recovery process. Whereas with adolescents, a lot of it is um, um, helping them live long enough to grow up <laughs> right <laughs> um so much of it is that they're they're the helping them to deal with the uh to be educated about the impact of this and to deal with the the family pressures and the peer pressures that they're medicating early on um and they're beginning to lay down patterns and so helping to stop the patterns from being laid down um in concrete right and to help them learn how to play 
and how to learn and how to have relationships and how to manage themselves and and provide self-care. The growing up, as you said, (laughs) these are important skills that most adults have developed to some degree or another, but most adolescents have not. So they still need help with the growing up part, though their chronological age may be older than their actual developmental age, because we know a lot of this developmental processes, particularly with self-motivation and relationships, stops at the age at which they start using drugs, so they may be an 18-year-old by calendar years, but they started using at 12 or 13, and so they really have got to learn how to have a relationship, how to handle anger and disappointment, and how to continue to be motivated even when things are not going their way. And those are lessons that all of us have to learn in life, but have often been interrupted for adolescence. And so treating the adolescent or the young adult often has to focus on things that don't necessarily seem age appropriate. looking at chronological age, and this is an important difference. Both in terms of, of things that are not age-appropriate because you would think they should already understand this, but also because their their addiction has taken them to places that they should not have gone yet. Right. So it's really helping them find the adolescents that got lost um, real often with the reality that their family system is not going to be um, the family system that they wanted. <laughs> exactly. Part of the, the outreach to the medical community is that part of pediatric visits and adolescent visits should be questions about drug use, unsafe sexual behavior, risky behavior such as driving without seat belts and riding with people who are intoxicated. These need to be part of the questions, just like you would like to ask them how they're sleeping and how they're eating and have they had a rash lately. These need to be part of a good exam. And that needs to be true in terms of the adult. Our doctors need to be trained in screening, brief intervention, and referral to treatment so that it becomes part of good medical care everywhere that we're looking for early the disease of addiction we're intervening as quickly as possible and we're referring to treatment and to evidence-based treatment programs so we're grateful for this report and we're grateful for you as listeners we'll see you next week on detailing addiction this is america's webradio.com the best in chat radio designed just for you